Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. I'm Lindsay Tremuda, and I'm a traveller who's always looking for the hidden story. A girl from Philadelphia studies French literature, moves to Paris, falls in love with a Frenchman, and becomes a best-selling author. And whilst that might sound like something straight out of a storybook, my guest today, Lindsay Tremuta, is far more interested in the reality of life in Paris than falling for the clichés. Lindsay Tremuta is a travel and culture writer who contributes to the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveller, Afar, Bon Appetit and Fortune magazine. She's also the best-selling author behind the widely acclaimed book The New Paris, which celebrates the creative movement changing the shape of the world's most storied city. Lindsay's recently released follow-up, The New Parisienne, is equally illuminating as she explores the women and ideas influencing the French capital today, as well as taking on the tired tropes of the idolised Parisian woman. After calling Paris home for 14 years and writing two books on the subject, you'll be hard-pressed to find an expat who's more of an expert on French culture. So, fellow Francophiles, here's your chance to explore Paris like a local, to get a real feel for the city beyond its grand boulevards, museums and monuments. We'll cycle through lesser-known neighbourhoods, explore left-bank bookstores and get a taste of the city's evolving culinary scene. Then we'll take a romantic road trip to the French countryside, far from the madding crowd, before escaping to Lebanon's most beguiling bed and breakfast, nestled in an ancient town outside of Beirut. Here's Lindsay Trimuta. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? Hello. Uh, I am good. I'm staring at sunshine out my window, uh, which in Paris always feels like a luxury. (laughs) That being said, though, I feel like Paris is one of those few cities that when it rains, it's still so beautiful because you've got those glistening zinc rooftops and I don't know, it just carries it off somehow. you're, You're right. There is something really compelling about Paris in the rain, as long as it's not too often. (laughs) Yeah, every now and then is okay. (laughs) So I'm really pleased to finally have a chance to chat with you because I bought a copy of your first book, The New Paris, The People, Places and Ideas Fueling a Movement, when it came out in 2017. And it just filled me with nostalgia because you wrote about all my favorite little places in Paris that I'd come to know and love when I lived there a few years earlier. And so I feel like your book really captured that exciting undercurrent of creative energy and that special moment in the city's history, uh, pushing well beyond the stereotype of Paris as this I guess, living museum. And I'm sure we're going to delve into that fascinating discussion and hear all about your insights into the city that you call home and all about your latest book, The New Parisienne. But before we do, let's go back well before you were a published author living in Paris. I'd be keen to hear what drew you to French culture initially. Well, so I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and that's on the East Coast. Um, And it wasn't so much the culture at first, it was actually the literature. And that was because of when I was in middle school, we were encouraged to start taking language. I fell completely head over heels with the feeling and the experience of speaking it and learning it and realizing that at some point I understood what I was reading. And 
And like the power in that and what that opens up in your mind is just so incredible. And so this was far before thinking like, where would I go to use this? This was not even that. It was just, let me let me dabble in this and feel what it's going to bring about for me. Did you travel to France to finally practice what you'd been learning in school? For sure. But it didn't happen as early as, you know, I had classmates that had been to Europe already and I was very envious of that. But I came to France in high school with my class over spring break. And that was, that changed everything. That was me deciding between is studying French uh, a very serious or realistic proposition for my future to, oh no, I need to do this regardless, because I felt like I was born in the wrong place. Wow. I felt like that there was something, you know, it's quite rare. I think maybe today it's a little bit different in the way that we're so encouraging of all sorts of alternative paths. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was a kid, it didn't feel like a very valuable thing to pursue. And so because the reaction was sort of like, what are you going to do with this? Why are you so enamored with everything you're exploring, it kind of made me feel like, you know, maybe the U.S. is not where I'm going to feel myself because clearly I'm being pulled in a different direction. And and it's a passion that fortunately or unfortunately will eventually require leaving my home. And so I think there was something in me that would have probably been opened up even if I hadn't spoken French, but that was going to bring me outside of my comfort zone. Mm, And this leads me really nicely to a question I love asking my guests about their favorite childhood travel memory. And I have a feeling that yours might just be an early trip to France in middle school. So what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, we spent very little time in Paris, actually. And I remember lots of colors, lots of smells of bakeries Mm -hmm. at seven in the morning and, and how that can just hypnotize you. The, the, the <laughs> so butter true. is so, so powerful. It's um, irresistible. <laughs> it's irresistible. Um, but what we were really doing was going to places outside of Paris. So we were going to Versailles and we were going to Chartres and we went to Chenonceau, another another castle. And, you know, I, I believe we made it to Saint-Malo and um, Mont-Saint-Michel. So we were nearing Brittany, but we didn't have enough time to do many, many days outside of the region. And I just felt like I had never seen history come to life in that way. Mm. You know, in Philadelphia, we have the Liberty Bell. We know the history. It's a very historical city. Yes, yeah. it is. It truly is. And and so you're aware of that. But I think like many kids, you take for granted the, you know, the heritage you have on your doorstep. And I, for one, was always begrudgingly going on these field trips to <laughs> yeah. downtown Philadelphia. And I was like, great, you know, Betsy Ross, the flag, great. Mm-hmm. And I think that's ignorance. That's maybe not having pop cultural gifts like Hamilton, which didn't exist when I was a kid, to really get people excited about that past. But in France, it's like it's everywhere. Mm. And and so I think they probably, for the most part, kids grow up, they have such a deep past right on their doorstep and are seeing it every corner. So, you know, the fact that you can drive to Chartres and to the Loire Valley or to Normandy beaches in a relatively short amount of time means that they have access to the past in a way that is very both enriching and compelling. So I found that pretty inspiring and also just the diversity of things you're seeing. You know, you can go from Paris and have the big city feel and then very quickly you're getting to these grand and elaborate palaces and fields of just large expanses of beautiful gardens and and then seeing the water and how radically different that landscape is from where you were two hours before. I think that ability to access so many different experiences within one country and one 
relatively small country compared to where you and I both come from. Mm, I can really relate to that. Whenever I'm driving in Europe, I always find myself amazed at how quick it is to get between vastly different destinations and countries that speak completely different languages when a flight between Sydney and Perth can take around five hours. So the density of experience in France is remarkable, but with that can come the crowds. And these days, everyone is very conscious of visiting places with less foot traffic, less crowds. So where would you recommend travelers consider venturing outside of Paris? The thing about the high tourist destinations within France is that even if they do bring in large crowds, they're probably still nothing like what the crowds are in Paris. So I like to go to Marseille. People like the French Riviera. I'm far more partial to Provence Occitanie, where you can get quickly into the most stunning limestone cliffs you've probably ever seen overhanging the Mediterranean. I mean, just absolutely divine. But even when you're driving around the Loire Valley and you're visiting the different chateaux and maybe the wine properties, it's not going to feel like queuing for the Louvre or queuing to go up the Eiffel Tower. I think there's um, a little bit more breathing room and, and all of them are great options and usually have extraordinary weather well into September. If one wanted to experience the French countryside, uh, is there a hotel or a place to stay that is just pure magic for you? Yeah, so in La Perche, which is, um, again, uh, outside of outside of Paris, it's, I would say, to get really into this very, very green kind of isolated countryside, it's about two hours at least. Um, and there's a place called Dunil, which basically means like of an island. Um, and it was run by a couple, kind of a very whimsical hippie couple mm -hmm. um there are several rooms there was a restaurant they had animals sort of like farm animals and and domestic animals running around mm -hmm. and then it was taken over by the chef owners of septime which is a very well-known oh, restaurant right, in yeah. paris and so what i think i mean i think they kept the spirit and it's very much sort of like um an elegant b&b &B. but obviously now that they're involved the food program is far more evolved and so that's a wonderful escape. I mean, it's you kind of need a car or you need to be, you know, to take a train and then a cab or something because it is a little bit out there, but it's wonderful. And that's kind of the best part of France is really getting into those isolated areas and, and just listening like you were one with nature. Mm, can you set the scene of the B&B &B for us? Like, what was it like staying there? Well, imagine sort of being in an in a heavily wooded area and it almost felt like my lungs were opening up and I could breathe properly, mm. <laughs> you know, like the freshness of the air and walking along the property feels like you're living under one green canopy. And I found that to be something very enveloping and very comforting. I remember driving down this one road where the trees were completely overhanging and so it really felt like we were driving through the forest, which is kind of a, a wonderful feeling. And just the crinkling of leaves and, and grass under my feet. You know, one of the things that um, we rarely experience in Paris is, is the pure quiet and the birds singing without any, any kind of motorbike sound, you know, coming out from the background. And, and I mean, unless I'm going to like one of the gardens and it hasn't been swept properly and so I get to walk across leaves and fallen natural detritus, you know, that I'm able to like have that sound that I love so much. Because I remember growing up in the States and you have these very colorful falls and you've got the multi-hued leaves and, and then the, the piles of leaves that fall to the ground. I mean, there's something very um, 
nostalgic about that for me. So being in a place in France where you can get that kind of... Where you feel the seasons in a way. Yeah, you feel the seasons and you hear the sounds mm. that remind you of things you heard, even in a vastly different place. But there's a thread there. And so reconnecting with that to me always feels very um, heartwarming. Oh, your descriptions certainly make me want to escape to the French countryside so badly. And the team behind Sept Team in Paris are very on trend. So I can imagine that that's another draw for visitors. Is there a dish that you tried uh, that stood out to you? Or how was the overall dining experience there? I mean, it's just an accessible market driven menu. So it's like, you can't even really classify the the cooking. I mean, it's essentially like, you know, they're pulling from what's really close by and they're getting at the markets and, you know, it might be a beautifully, perfectly cooked piece of fish with greens and lots of root vegetables. Um, it isn't meant to be Michelin starred prices because their restaurant Septime is now one Michelin star. So certainly their prices have gone up a bit, mm. but they keep that ethos. Same thing. They own Clamato in Paris, which is seafood bar restaurant. And again, they know how to cook fish. They know how to source their ingredients. And so you're getting just market bounty on the plate. That I think is what I recall and what I took away more more so than like a very specific dish. But it's beautifully executed and in this sumptuous environment where you're almost plucked into a fairy tale. Speaking of fairy tales, your life in Paris is something that I'm sure many listeners fantasize about, quitting their desk jobs and moving to the city of light. I mean, you packed your bags in 2006 and you moved to France. You were in your early 20s, you were there to study, you met your French husband-to-be within three days of landing there, and then you became a best-selling author. I mean, talk about a fairy tale. And thinking back, like, what was that initial move like for you? Did you experience any culture shock? Well, again, because I didn't feel like I belonged 100% in the US, I kind of was very excited for what the adventure was going to bring, but I was also very nervous about how I was going to make it all work. So I came... Uh, I was still studying, so I knew that I wasn't finished yet with sort of uh, the journey to getting into the professional world. So um, I was seeing somebody at that point as well, and so I was getting more and more attached to him and this place and the idea of building a life here, but still not really knowing 100% like what my career was going to be. There's always some uncertainty with a big move like that. So what happened next? Like, Did you encounter any problems or was it all smooth sailing for you? If you flash forward to 2007 and I started looking for jobs and the, the tricky thing, especially at that time, was the French not being as open to what someone who's from the U.S. or a non-European country can bring to the table and the reluctance to finance their paperwork. And so it was going to be complicated. And I ended up deciding to go to grad school. So again, it sounds like I just did it to buy myself time. But in the end, I think it was crucial because... It brought me all the, a lot of contacts that I didn't have and would never have had, and mm. also taught me how to think critically and write more critically. And, and, you know, so I look at that as being a key step in getting me where I am today. Mm. And what was your idea of Paris before you moved there compared to the, I guess, the reality of your lived experience? Because I know that's something that you touch on in both of your books that you've written. Mm-hmm. So how did that pan out for you? Well, I mean, again, I think the the good thing is that I didn't have, um, and this is something I talk about in the in the second book. I don't. I was so engrossed in classic literature that I was not spending a lot of time consuming contemporary novels or films about 
France. And so I didn't have, I didn't buy into that fantasy. Um, and by that fantasy, I presume you mean the archetypes of Paris and the Parisian yes. woman fitting a certain mythologized mold and exactly. carrying this mystique, I guess, white, thin, seductive, impossibly chic, immaculately dressed, these cliches that many foreigners believe about more specifically the Parisian, but also conflate it with the idea of French women in general. Yes. I think what I was shocked by was the constant upholding of an image that seemed like even to me early on, I was like, this doesn't seem to represent a lot of people. You're so right. And the more time you spend getting to know the real Paris, you realize how much this idolized image doesn't even come close to representing the diversity of the city, all the people who live in it today. Exactly. And I loved the quote in your new book, taken from the journalist and activist Rakaia Diallo, where she says, there's a whole image around the Parisian that needs to be reconstructed because it's been a long time since she's looked like Brigitte Bardot or Edith Piaf, Paris is one of the most multicultural cities in Europe. Yeah, so we've come a long way, but still I receive emails from from readers who tell me, you know, they came to Paris and they weren't expecting to see as many, I don't know, North Africans or West Africans mm-hmm. yeah. or such a, a broad Asian population. I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's a problem in the storytelling here. I think it's still a very whitewashed story that we're presented with. And so when I think back to my early days here, I was constantly like mentally going back and forth between like, I'm seeing so much diversity. Why am I so bothered by, you know, the this one fantasy mm. or one one set of aspirational images that I feel I have to hold myself to? And now I have the the framework to understand why this happens. And how it leaves out so many people and why and who, you know, what powers that be have a, have an interest in having these fantasies continue and, you know, because they sell so much, they sell books, they sell products, they sell ideas, and it continues to help Paris as a destination, which has become a brand as well. And so really this idea fits with both books because the first book I was trying to say, like, open your eyes, people, there's a whole other side to this city and it's, you know, far more than the sum of its monuments, which are fantastic. But we tend to think of Paris as the city that never changes. And yet, at many points of it in its history, including in the 17th and 18th century, were the innovations coming out of this city made it a European darling. Yeah, Paris was a trailblazer at that time in how they envisaged and built the city. Yes. And in more recent decades, it's held on to its reputation. So when you get stuck in the past, you inevitably stop innovating and being creative. But by the time you arrived in Paris, and certainly when I lived there, there was an undercurrent sort of bubbling up and has since really started to shape and change the city. And that's something that you focus on in your book, The New Paris. But overall, Paris remains at its core very conservative in its ways. Exactly. And, you know, there's a woman in my book, um, in the second book, her name is Ariane Bernard, and she grew, I mean, she's Parisian through and through, but has spent most of her career in the U.S., and so she comes back and forth. And I think the distance from Paris allowed her to see that one of the big things that's that can be quite limiting about Paris or can, can hold people back is that it is so beautiful and it has this homogeny that you – that you feel like you can't possibly disturb that order. Mm. A woman with pink hair and combat boots walking around the Place de la Concorde and around such history is almost 
tainting somehow our impression of the Parisian story. And, mm. you know, I thought that was quite interesting. She kind of expresses Paris as someone like a teacher who who imposes something similar, you know, be very careful about how you you hold yourself and how you behave in my in my presence. So that's that's a very where where does that leave room for innovation? I mean, it's here. That's not the point. But because that's the image that has been trotted out in films, including, you know, everyone talks about Midnight in Paris as yeah, one of the yeah, 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 yeah. key examples of, of how you perpetuate some of these idyllic ideas. And I think a lot of us have fallen for them. I know that I fell for the seductive charms of Paris, and I certainly arrived with romantic notions of this city's literary history with celebrated French writers and philosophers, and I read Ernest Hemingway's Immovable Feast, and I wanted to follow in the footsteps of the great expat writers of the lost generation like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. So I ended up living as a tumbleweed or writer-in-residence at the legendary Shakespeare and Company bookstore. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so that idea or notion of Paris drew me there. That's so cool. Yeah, it was magical. (laughs) It was so magical. When the bookstore closed for the night, we'd pull our bedding from the nooks and the crannies of the store and then literally slept amongst the dusty bookshelves. But yeah, I had all these ideas of Paris based on all the books that I'd read. But then when I got there, I actually found an exciting contemporary literary community of like-minded creatives. And we'd drink cheap red wine by the Seine and discuss our ideas or attend spoken word poetry events at Chat Noir. And it felt like there was almost a creative fervor that was happening at that time. So I think that what it is, is, and it's it's unfortunate, but a lot of people I know who travel to Paris have these preconceived notions from magazines and film. So they're shocked when they arrive in Paris, but they can't quite recreate that idea. So they hit these main tourist sites and places that they're sort of expected to tick off. And then they leave disappointed that it didn't live up to this fantasized image or idolized vision of the city. But I think that it's wonderful to seek out those that old world charm. But I think it coexists so beautifully with this contemporary innovative Paris too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I was I was going to say that uh, as as for your anecdote in the beginning of, you know, feeling very drawn to to follow in the footsteps of those old thinkers. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I think what becomes very much a shame is to not explore the other side of the coin mm-hmm. and how, as you say, the new coexists with the old. And I think Paris has been quite good at honoring the past while still looking forward. And And so if you take someone who's here for a short amount of time, something that they could do is, yes, plan to hit some of those old sites or museums and then make sure that the, let's say the restaurants you're choosing are a little bit more in the contemporary space or figure out some of the more less frequented neighborhoods to take a stroll in to balance out the day. Um, With that in mind, you know Paris like the back of your hand. Which neighborhoods do you think would be a great introduction to the Paris that you know and love as mm. a local? And which restaurants would you seek out like the new Paris, not the institutions that are resting on their laurels, but the exciting culinary world of Paris? Well, um, so I'm. I live in the 11th arrondissement, which is. Oh, I uh, love the 11th. Yeah, which is uh, east of the Bastille, um, and you know this is where the culinary movement, the bastronomy movement, really took Absolutely, off. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, and also parts of the 10th arrondissement, but mostly the 11th. Um, and so, for me, I mean, you could 
this could be your starting point or it could be the place where you do most of your meals. I mean, it really is so rich with with options. I mean, and in terms of sort of like accessible food that is, you know, very much uh, reflective of the way Parisians are dining today. I mean, you have places like Bambino, which is all wood fire or wood burning oven cooked vegetables and focaccia and playing with different vegetables, playing with penis, which is um, which is more of a southern French specialty that's sort of like fries but uses um, penne, a different vegetable. These small plates sharing natural and biodynamic wines, the prices are really affordable and so you're not spending a fortune on some like stuffy experience mm. and wondering why you're in a room with mostly tourists. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, just to throw out a few restaurants, even in the 11th that are good options, you know, Bambino, there's Le Marie Soleste, mm-hmm. and that's a fish-leaning wine bar and restaurant uh, run by the founders of Candelaria, which is mm, the okay. city's first taqueria and cocktail bar. Very cool. And it's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Martin, which is a fantastic bar that looks like just some average bistro on a corner, but really divine market-driven small plates. And you go for good beer and really inexpensive wines from all over Europe. And it is lively. I mean, it spills into the street every day that it's open. I love how passionate you are. Oh my God. Sorry. I'm just like, at this point, I'm like running through all of my favorite (laughs) spots in my head. Like, where should I say next? Um, But also to give you an example, the Canal Saint-Martin is Mm -hmm. very close to here. That is a wonderful waterway. Oh, it's so charming. And any listeners who enjoyed the film Amelie should visit because it's the setting of where she used to sort of skip those stones along the waterway. Mm -hmm. But it's just such a trendy sort of local area. And I used to go to Ten Bell Coffee Shop when I lived in Paris. And it was one of the few specialty coffee shops where you could get a decent flat white back in those days, along with uh, Kachum and KB Cafe and Mm. yeah, Ten Bells. But now there are more and more popping up. And that's actually something that I wanted to talk to you about, as I'm sure that the listeners would be interested to know about the difference between the coffee shop culture and the traditional cafe culture of Paris, like Café de Flore or Les Deux Magots. Well, so Paris has been known for its café culture. And that's that's a space where uh, ostensibly you go to drink coffee, but really it's not about the coffee. It's not even about the tea. It's about the socializing. It's about the social connection. If you think back to wartime, it was a place where thinkers and resistors gathered outside of the home and sort of filled this space between private and public life. So it was a third space. And that image And that sort of role has really carried on through the ages. I mean, it's still a place where, yes, you go to meet people and maybe you go to have meetings and maybe you go to read and just people watch. But it's never really about the drink itself. Um, And so most of the French, uh, okay, well, let's say Parisians, Mm -hmm. have, have not been reared attributing much importance to the quality of the coffee itself. They sort of drink it without thinking, and it's it's for caffeine, it's maybe for kind of like to put something in your hand in addition to the cigarette that's in the other hand. Mm-hmm. It's it's to cleanse the palate after a meal, but you're not really looking at it as flavors and notes and profiles in the way that wine does, except that it does. And so the coffee culture 
movement, the specialty coffee movement, had a place to grow because it was in clear opposition to all these years and years of, of consuming the same thing. So it takes a while to get consumers who have been conditioned otherwise to get on board with that. Mm. So now, obviously, uh, this was a big theme in my book, in the first book, because it felt like an explosion. And finally, French people were starting to understand why they should care about where their coffee comes from and how it's made. And so today, you can't go in any neighborhood without seeing what looks to be some kind of embrace of specialty coffee. And even the work of roasters like Café Lomi and Belleville Brouderie mm-hmm. um, and Coutume have brought good coffee into more traditional spaces, you know, traditional brasseries. So it's you have to consider that they're two different worlds. Mm. But now the good coffee experience can be found in certain places <laughs> that also fit the codes of a cafe culture. Oh, thanks for that very eloquent explanation. And it's such a relief that the coffee scene has taken off because in a country where you can find the best pastries imaginable, it's fantastic that you can now enjoy them with a good cup of coffee too. I know. Now, your first book, The New Paris, set out to pull back the veneer and expose the city's more diverse character. Mm. And it wasn't initially um, to be a traditional guidebook, but it's very much been used in that way. So I guess a lot of listeners might be curious to know, like, what would be your perfect day in Paris? Like, what would that look like for you? I'd probably spend a lot of time in the Palais Royal Gardens, which is in the center Mm. of town, you know, not far from the Louvre, because I find it to be like the most... I don't know, the most Parisian experience plopped in the middle of the city around these gorgeous archways and there's flowers, there's fountains, there's these beautiful trees that create sort of this covered pathway that I just find so stunning. And so it has all of the makings of old Paris, really. And then I'd probably cross the, you know, cross the river, go up toward Luxembourg Gardens, stop at the Red Wheelbarrow bookstore, uh, maybe have a coffee at Trez, which is, a, which is another wonderful cafe right next to the bookstore. We're on the left bank now. Yes, so we've crossed to the left bank, and then I'd probably ride my bike. I've, I don't know if I was riding or walking before, but who cares? Well, I'm sure there's a Vlieb bicycle station nearby, so why not just hop on one of those? Right. So I would ride um, past the Pantheon to get back to Boulevard Saint-Germain, and I mm-hmm. would I would ride um, along the boulevard because it goes all the way until you get to the, the – Institut du Monde Arabe, so the Institute of the Arab World. Um, And then I cross back over to the right bank toward Bastille and then go on Boulevard Beaumarchais. I would stop at Merci and see what's there, uh, which is a concept store, great concept store. And then I would probably start planning, what am I going to eat, you know? So maybe I'll go and stop at Holy Belly or I'll go to Café mm. Méricourt for, I don't know, shakshuka. Maybe for something more traditional, I will go to, well, I'll plan that evening to go to Martin because I told you I love Martin. And mm-hmm. that's a mix between sort of like ultra casual, small plates, market driven, but still feels very French. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe I would finish at the Marie Celeste for another glass of wine. And those, they do these incredible deviled eggs that, um, with like pickled onions and puffed rice. I can hear that you're fancying them right now. I'm like, I I actually had them, I had them two days ago. 
so they're really front of mind. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making us all really hungry. And I'm loving these recommendations as you're really exploring the neighborhoods. And you're not just hitting the Champs-Élysées and the tourist sites, but you're giving us a sense of what locals actually do. Now, when you were talking about cycling along the left bank, you reminded me of a place that I always used to take my friends who were visiting town, and that's the Grand Mosque near the Jardin du Plan, because when you enter that courtyard garden with its green tiles and towering minaret and lush, lush gardens, it's a scene that transports you to Morocco. And of course, there's this wonderful tea room where you can sit for hours drinking Moroccan mint mm-hmm. tea and eating these honey-slathered pastries. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been there uh, several times. And it's, again, it's a reflection of what the city actually is. So you can't really have Paris without influence from Morocco and Algeria. And that's a really beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm so glad that that's been such an anchor in the in the fifth. Are there any other places that you feel show another side to Paris one might not expect and could really diversify a visitor's experience? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, even in the 13th arrondissement, you have um, a massive Asian community with mm-hmm. some of the best Vietnamese, Chinese, and uh, Thai food in the entire city. Um, same thing in Belleville. You have a whole mix of cultures from North Africa to Asian to, you know, it's also been a big draw for sort of an artsy crowd. So it's a real mixing of cultures. And just south of there, closer to me, is a fantastic Berber restaurant called L'Homme Bleu that's been here for 30 years. And you can get these amazing tagine and couscous. And mm. it feels just as it should, which is it's at home in this in this city that has welcomed a whole host of cultures over the years. And also in, the, in parts of La Goutte d'Or, which is the one section of the 18th arrondissement, you have African cuisine. So what makes up the Parisian dining palette today goes far beyond what we tend to think. Oh my gosh, Lindsay, I'm sure all the listeners are furiously scribbling down these amazing recommendations. Now, in terms of where to sleep in Paris, is there a hotel that you could live in for the rest of your life because it's that gorgeous? Oh, wow. That's a really tricky question. Um... I mean, I love the Hôtel de Crillon because it is so mm. just stunning in this incredible location and with its past. Marie-Antoinette was took piano lessons there and it's just a, a wildly extravagant space. And so if money were no option and I had the opportunity, I would certainly live there. <laughs> That's the one my mind immediately goes to. I completely agree with you. That hotel is beautiful beyond words and I'd happily move into the room next door. And we've done such a deep dive into exploring Paris. But I do know that although it's going to be hard to tear ourselves away from talking about our beloved city, you have traveled to Lebanon and that's a place that I've never been. And I'm curious to hear about your impressions of Beirut and about Lebanon more generally. So that, I mean, there's less of an ability to easily say what is uh, old and contemporary. I mean, it's a city that's been rebuilt countless times. Um as soon as you get into that part of the world, also you're you're looking at history that is that the mind can barely wrap itself around, and a past that is so far-reaching. So for me, it was I had no expectations. Mm-hmm. I just I knew that all of the Lebanese that I know in France and that I've known in the U.S. 
have been the most generous people I've probably ever met Mm -hmm. and with some of the most extraordinary cooking. I knew that much. I knew that I was probably going to meet wonderful, warm, welcoming people because that's that's who they are. Mm. Um, and I was not disappointed. They are absolutely that way. And they are so, they were so excited that me and my husband were taking an interest in their past and their culture and what it means today and, and to get out there and see other parts of the country. Because I started in Beirut, but we went to um, Biblos, to Tripoli, to Baalbek. Um, I mean, we really drove almost north to south. And I was just blown away by the resilience of Lebanese people. So many of them, if they haven't left Lebanon, they've really experienced all of the many phases of war, of of turmoil, of then economic turmoil and, you know, resistance to the government and the lack of leadership. And you get the sense that these are people who simply want the best for, for their people and for their land. And they're incredibly helpful to other people and and even other people who are not Lebanese or not from there. I just remember being quite lost in a place in an area of Beirut that maybe I just, you know, I didn't know if I was, if it was a good idea for me to be standing there and for too long. And the instantaneous help to get me on my way was sort of really wonderful and surprising and, and surprising mostly because I come from France where Paris in particular, people are not so inclined to help. <laughs> that is a stereotype that unfortunately can be quite true. But now for those of us who haven't been to Beirut, can you set the scene for us? Like, What were your impressions of the city? To me, it felt a bit like Naples or Marseille in the sense that there's a lot going on. It's noisy. There are cars everywhere. People are walking everywhere. But the difference here is that this is a city that has clearly been influenced by not influenced, but shaped by war. And mm-hmm. so you still have so many vestiges of of that time. So bombed out buildings, buildings that have bullet holes, buildings that I learned were and may still be government lookout points or sort of army lookout points, um, sidewalks that are barely paved. Um, but then at the same time, you have this extraordinary sense of life. People are clearly celebrating the everyday because they don't know when something might take it away. Mm-hmm. So I got the sense that they are a very optimistic people. Um, and the streets sort of lively with like cafes yes, and, and people sort of enjoying. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's one neighborhood, which I will probably not pronounce properly, but Mar Mikael. And that's where you have a whole long stretch of bars and market shops and cafes and you know, you just get the sense that that's where all the life and thinking is happening. Mm. Restaurants are super important. There's this iconic spot, an older man who makes ice cream. And it's in like kind of a hole in the wall, not mm-hmm. a whole lot of signage. They're the best places, aren't they? <laughs> they absolutely are. And this was through Taste Lebanon. So they led me here. And this man grew up in a family of ice cream makers. And it's interesting because the cone is not round. He does these cones that are sort of rectangular at the top. And so hmm. the ice cream fits inside and has a much different shape than you're used to. And they were just wonderful. And you go in and there's like a handful of flavors, pistachio, fruit, orange blossom. Yum. And and there were little kids and then there were 
older people coming in for their daily ice cream. And, and the man, I was talking to him and he said that when he's not equipped to do it anymore, he doesn't know that it will continue because his children don't want to take it over. And I was just like, this, that's the sad part is, mm. and then that's true for anywhere, but in, in a place like this where he has brought so much joy to people, it would be a real shame for that not to continue. Mm. A place like that is such a cornerstone of the community. So let's hope that totally. it has a long future ahead. And Lebanese food around the world has quite a reputation for being delicious. So was there anything that you tried that surprised or delighted you over there? Well, I've just had the best labneh that I've ever had in my whole life Mm. there. So that's uh, unfortunately nothing really comes close outside of Lebanon. You know, and it's just a strained yogurt, essentially, uh, with a bit of a sourness to it. And I mean, I must have eaten my weight in pita and hummus and labne at the end of that week you know I just (laughs) but I also discovered the Armenian red tabule which involves tomatoes more so than the mint and parsley and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing Um, so it had a much different flavor and I liked it actually better than um, sort of your classic tabule Ah, Um, and that was at an Armenian restaurant on my first night in Beirut where again Taste Lebanon brought us and just had absolutely divine, divine food outdoors. Oh, that sounds so good. And what about venturing outside of Beirut? Were there any highlights for you? So one thing to keep in mind is you definitely need a car and ideally a guide to take you around outside of Beirut. Um, So eventually we arrived at this incredible hotel and sort of like self-sufficient estate in the Shouf region. So it's actually not that far from Beirut. I want to say it's about 25 kilometers and it's up in the hills and it just, it looks like you're on the top of a mountain. You get a sense that there's life down below, but you're perched on top. I'll find the name of the hotel for you. We can pop those details in the show notes. It was absolutely wonderful. I really liked that experience because it also felt like, well, first of all, the the, the owners of the hotel bring in uh, local craftspeople and gave them jobs. There's a lot of unemployment throughout the country, but also in this area, they wanted to make sure that the locals were as as much a part of bringing this space into the future as they were. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having a local very talented ceramicists sort of lead a pottery workshop on the premises. Oh, wow. Um, I thought was quite exceptional. And he was making all of the dishware that they use in the restaurant. So I just had so many different experiences. Baalbek is their ancient ruins. And that is a site that has certainly seen all sorts of trauma and stories and has just documented the passing time and to see that felt like a bit like going to to Athens or to to Rome um and and it's it's quite incredible to see how many of those ruins still exist oh you're making me want to visit and definitely staying at places that are locally run and support the community is the best thing to do Mm -hmm. now before we go where are you dreaming of escaping to next Oh, where am I dreaming of traveling next? Very good question. Well, I mean, I'm for years I've dreamt of traveling to Japan and and that's still very high on my list, but I also on a much more modest in the sense that it doesn't require going so far. I've still dreamt of driving through Austria and experiencing sort of like the hills are alive, you know, sound <laughs> of music style. Um And so I would love to do a road trip through Austria. And knowing you, Lindsay, you'll uncover so much more than the sound of music stereotype of the hills are alive in Austria. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I loved your insights into Paris and hopefully we can catch up for a decent cup of coffee in the 11th arrondissement sometime soon. I'd love that. Let's do it. 
That was the travel and culture writer, Lindsay Trimuda. And for those sharp-eared listeners, we did indeed have a cameo at the very end from her cats, Charlie and Leo, who live with Lindsay in her picture-perfect Parisian apartment. Don't forget to look out for Lindsay's best-selling, The New Paris, and her latest book, The New Parisienne. Both books will have you looking at the city of light in a brand new light. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.